Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, listeners. If you love this Anthro Life and you want to support the show, Anchor.fm makes it super easy to do. They give you options to donate $1, $5, or $10 on a monthly basis. Whatever you choose to support us with, we're grateful to have you, and it's going to help us produce better and better content. And now, on to the show. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to This Anthropological Life. This is Adam Gamwell. This is Ryan Collins. And this is Neil Tripathi. Today, we're brought to you in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. We're really excited to announce this partnership. We've we've just kicked up with them uh, this month, and we're going to be exploring this partnership together by, you know, co-advertising with each other and letting people know about what's going on with the AAA. And this is the largest anthropological association in the world. Uh, with over 10,000 members, and so we're thrilled to be part of that and you know, co-evolving with them, and they're going to help uh, spread TAL across the nation, this great nation of ours, uh, speaking of today's episode. And uh, so without further ado, we're going we're gonna to jump into the, to today's episode, which is, you know, we kind of went back and forth of what to title this episode, you mm-hmm. know, and, and one of it was sort of why do Americans hate politicians or why we fed up with American politics or what? Why, why do we concern ourselves with elections? Why do we run away from elections? But really, we're just recognizing that there is a, a stigma against this season right now. Hmm. Uh, the elections are causing a lot of disdain, and the media coverage is all over it. So if it's the most popular thing in the media, yet it's causing such a distaste in us, what is the problem? And we actually think that there are a lot of different reasons for the problems we're having, and that's one of the things that makes it so interesting. So to start off, we could talk about what we have in common with politics, say, 10,000 years ago, and what that actually has to do with today. And the real comparative spirit of anthropology. Exactly. So for the human species, as we understand it today, we've been around for about 250,000 years. And it's a pretty been, good run, no? Oh, yeah, I think we're doing okay. Yeah. <laughs> But for city life, for real dwellings with long, with large groups of people, that's only been for about the past, say, five to 7,000 years. Hmm. So before that, we were living in small groups. You might call them bands. You might call them tribes. These were groups of close, uh, closely linked kin families, basically, extended families. Uh, and there would only be about 40 of them at a time, migrating throughout the landscape, foraging off of uh, whatever uh, plants that they could find, as well as hunting. So you have this group dynamic that is really collectively gathered around uh, security for your group, which is your closest family, Mm. security in terms of uh, 
food access, water access, and shelter in case of any type of danger. And when you have 40 people together, think of a family reunion today, when you're trying to get everybody invested. Mm. It's often often great for a little while, but after a few days, the family reunion starts to get into everybody's nerves, tensions start to build. So politics with 40 people can be difficult enough. Yeah, but even a good point to think about with this is, of course, as you're saying, Ryan, that we evolved this way. So, you know, when you exactly. think about sort of the, you know, the nature versus nurture debate or the, the impact of the environment on, our, on ourselves, uh, you know, we in any group didn't evolve in a vacuum, right? So no. when we talk about that we, we were living in these small bands of, of close family members or a tribe, which is a bit bigger than that, right? Maybe maybe 100, like 40 to 100 people, maybe, you know? Exactly. Um, our brains evolved to work with this mem- this number of people, right? Exactly. And this is for 240,000 years yeah. of our species' time. Yeah. And if we think back even beyond that, this is all any proto-human, any Australopithecine, any previous member of the genus Homo, any other ape. Mm. Yeah, the, the the size was you know first came out by anthropologist Robin Dunbar in the in the 1990s, and his number you know really connected to the idea that people we can only really manage approximately 150 relationships, mm-hmm. uh, just cognitively, right? And and how we've evolved as as we've been saying. So uh, it's fascinating right, to think about this evolutionary history and then then where we are today. Exactly. Mm. And then thinking to uh, further compound that, we can only remember about 500 individuals. And past that point, it becomes very difficult for our brains to comprehend that number. Mm. So when we move from 40 people, and then we compound that complexity to today and the U.S. uh, society that we have, 400 million people, that relationship is severely compounded. So it's difficult to imagine that some of our politicians could truly represent the sort of needs, desires, issues that are facing every uh, individually grouped uh, families, issues, any type, it really represent the full diversity of our society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, you know, we can remember, because when we talk about you know, the United States sells itself as a democracy, right? And it's sort of championed from the idea that, you know, the Greeks invented the, the idea of demos, which is the citizen, you know? And this is, of course, a, a fully participating member in society versus a slave. Uh, so even the idea of where this came from, I mean, listen, so we may say the ideals of, of democracy are good because it means one person has one vote and that they can have a voice in the civic world to say, okay, we want to make sure this is managed, that's managed. I want to say that I would care about this kind of health care, that kind of health care, whatever. Uh, it's an important point to think that, you know, even that too. So even the idea of the political system is not super old, right? We're talking a couple thousand years within this time frame too. And so even, again, we're saying if we're talking a 250,000 year range up until a couple thousand in terms of having this larger citizenry and, and the thing that we call a democracy, this is a fairly new invention exactly. in the lineage of humanity. And when we think about the way in which governments have grown up around the world all over, it's not just in forms of democracy, but the foundations of political systems are based upon different things. If you look to Mesopotamia, we often think now that it's finance. If we look Mm. to Egypt, we see some sort of political ritual displays, a concern for the afterlife. If you look to uh, other areas, it's often about water procurement, or sometimes it's based around dancing. It's Mm. really based around the collective effervescence that a group will get into. Mm. The whole idea that we're going to come together and make a great party and make a great time happen. Yeah, very true. That's a good point. I mean, collective effervescence, yeah, is this idea from Emil Durkheim, right? Mm -hmm. He's a sociologist uh, that anthropologists just borrow from all the time because he's one of our our founding fathers, too, in terms of how we think about 
the social toolbox and the idea with this, which is, it's a really great idea, is that uh, effervescence, if you think of it, it sounds like bubbles, right? So which is, it's always a weird term to me because it's like, okay, our, bub- our brains are collectively bubbling together. But uh, the idea is that our brains and, and actually our hearts too, like our nervous systems sync together in certain ritual events like a big religious festival uh, or in this case could be a political festival. Or even a really fun concert. Or a great concert, right? And actually concerts can be even easier to see this because they have a beat, you know, exactly. and that, that you sort of follow along with, you know, that we sync up to. Um, and so we certainly see this in the political arena too, right? That there's a fervor that comes with it, you know? And so there is definitely, I think you're, you're right, that the collective effervescence is an important way to like talk about what happens to us. Conceptualize what happens to us in, in a political event too. And and what's ha- fascinating now though, right, is it seems what our main collective effervescence is as a society right now for our current political election coming up mm. uh, is uh, division, right? And this yeah. sense of uh, dissatisfaction and contempt for for our political system, mm-hmm. which is fascinating, right? Because it seems to be on all sides, right? right? With, uh, you know, liberals not being the happiest with Hillary Clinton or you have the, the Bernie Sanders division mm-hmm. or, uh, and then on on the, the Republican side, you have so many Republicans disavowing Donald Trump, trying to find different candidates to support. Right. And there's, you know, it seems the majority of people are actually at, at on this in the same place right now in terms of just feeling upset with this mm-hmm. political system. So it, it's a funny situation to be in, right, where it seems the thing that is most communal in our society right now is just uh, a dissatisfaction right. with the system. Exactly. And what's important to look at is one of the statistics we've actually pulled up that suggests that this is perhaps not even a new phenomenon. Mm. That Americans say that they are more bothered by politicians abusing political power than they are by some of the other personal issues, most often associated with political downfalls. Mm-hmm. We're saying potentially issues with 75% of politicians having poor uh, uh, poor standards, poor associations to them. So for discontent with 75% of politicians, mm-hmm. that suggests a very big problem. It tells you something. I mean, yeah, because, you know, again, you know, you know, whether you like or don't like polls, right? It, it's, it, it does say something that, you know, Congress in the United States has such a low approval rating. Right? It's in head. I mean, and there's, a, you know, you can get polls from any year. I mean, we just randomly pulled it up from 2014, which is two years ago, but, you know, we're moving into this election. And it's something like 17% approval rating in Congress. That's super low, right? And so then it, I guess one of, the, one of the questions we want to ask here as anthropologists or just as, as social thinkers is, you know, you know, how did we get here? And then why does it seem like we don't have a choice then? Like if we have a democracy, which the idea is ostensibly based around that we can vote and choose who, you know, choose either direct democracy in terms of choosing what policies will go into place or voting to have somebody else vote for us, which is a republic, which is actually what the United States is since we have elected members of Congress. Uh, either way, it's this interesting question of how then do we get away with having a 17 percent approval rating of Congress of the people that we are elected officials? That's really low. Mm-hmm. Right. We could be, in some sense, focusing away from some certain aspects of government to refocus on, well, our, our main politicians, our presidents, our main leaders, right? Uh, governors uh, and presidents, they're the largest aggrandizers. And when I say aggrandizer, I just simply mean someone who is of an elite status that is mm. able to co-op lots of people together to create some sort of either charismatic effect to garner support or they're able to elicit support through some other means. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. I mean, this makes me think of that there's, there's a really nice piece that was put out on, on Savage Minds blog, which is an, an anthropology blog that we recommend checking out that's 
you know, ways of thinking anthropologically in kind of a public way, like we do on, on this Anthro Life. And Daniel Goldstein is an anthropologist who interviewed some of his friends in Bolivia about their perspective of the U.S. election. And while it may sound strange to hop over to Bolivia to talk about what's happening in U.S. elections, I think there's a lot of resonance here to think about. Uh, so one of his friends uh, pointed out this idea, his friend's name is Elijado, and that the idea is, he says that political and global news in this case have become Kardashianized, which is a word that he made up at the point, but we, you know, we know who the Kardashians are, so this actually makes sense, right? That... Uh, the sources of these respectable news systems, if, if you want to see like CNN and NBC as respectable, NBC, they, bec- they become sort of tabloids, right? Just had this never-ending Clinton-Trump debate, which actually, of course, tonight is the third and final debate. Uh, you know, we'll need to we'll be checking out, but uh, it's just sort of this idea that for for this for Elihado, this like watching these debates and these ideas confirms for him that like that he, he's a pessimist about this stuff, and that that you know. To him, Americans see the world as their playground, and this is an interesting point from the outside, uh, because we have notions within the political debate of having saying, you know, you've heard "Make America Great Again" probably, and other such statements that say we need to be, you know, we need to be more of a world leader in this and that. But from the outside, it looks like you know America as a country treating the world as its playground. You know, from from this Bolivian's perspective, it's an important point. Like you know, this, the kid strutting his big toys and the big kid on the block. Uh, however, it's. You know, we don't seem to have any escape from this cycle of just back and forth. Trump said this, Trump did that, Clinton said this, Clinton did that. And there's no there's no sort of way out of it, right? Um, and one way to sort of help me think about this and maybe help us think about it is this notion called hypernormalization. Um, that uh, there's actually a new documentary by by a filmmaker named Adam Curtis out of, out of the UK, and this is actually you can stream it on the BBC iPlayer. We'll put the link on the show notes. Um, but just it's this idea of understanding how the world seems so crazy and how we got here. The documentary itself, I mean, it's two hours and, and 46 minutes, it's, so it's actually quite a long documentary. Uh, and we'll leave that for you to watch it. But the idea is he goes through looking at a bunch of different pieces of history, starting in the United States in, in 1975 with the Reagan years and moving till now. Uh, but hyper-normalization, this idea, is actually it comes from a book by Alexei Yurchak, and the book was called Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More, and it's the last Soviet generation. So it's actually about the fall of the USSR. But what's interesting is that there's a lot of paradoxes that came out of the Soviet Union and the way it ran. Uh, and, you know, such as like three people, if you wanted to buy a piece of meat at the grocery store, you had to have, you had to go through literally three people. Like the person that you'd say, I'd like to get the meat, they give you a ticket. The person that would then take the ticket to the other person, they then cut the meat. You take that, another person would package then give you the meat versus one person does that now in a grocery store. What's fascinating is I think these types of grocery stores are having a resurgence in places like Poland and different boxes, kind of the new uh, hip mm-hmm. trend huh. to get that kind of nostalgic yeah, I mean, feeling. there's definitely there's definitely a nostalgia to it. It's absolutely, you know, in terms of like, you know, getting a taste for this kind of, of the way life would go, you know, if you want to call it that. Um, but so there's, there's sort of weird contradictions that we would say, okay, why that that seems hyper inefficient to do that, you know. But so this idea of hyper normalization that that Curtis talks about in this documentary is, it's like when people could see something not working, and they knew that a system wasn't working, or that politicians were not working for them, or that that this is there's you know an inefficiency that's causing something to break. But nobody could do anything about it because nobody can really imagine a way outside of it. Uh, and you know, I think we as anthropologists or, or you know thinkers have had these kinds of talks with different friends or family members or other people too, where you you know we might say, okay, well, there's there's issues with capitalism that we're seeing that you know, sort of how our country runs uh, with this economic system. But then the most common question you can get is like, well, what else would there be, right? Mm-hmm. And this this is the classic example of hypernormalization because we're so inundated and so in and so sort of enmeshed in the capitalist system that to imagine something outside of it is really difficult. And this is the same for the USSR and the Soviet Union. I mean, obviously capitalism and in in this case, socialism existed together at the same time on the planet, but neither would really imagine the other one working. 
you know. And so, yes, capitalism is alive right now, but, you know, some people posit it's in its death throes. Other people posit that it's going strong. You know, that's for a different episode. But nonetheless, the idea is that we are so in a social system that we can't even imagine an outside of it, right? And so when you look at the American political system, we're saying, okay, so we have Congress that has 17% approval rating. We have an election coming up where most people would like to have box D on their ballot, none of the above, as mm-hmm. an option. Uh, you know, we have this, and then so sort of the question is like, how, what are we doing here? And, and, and is this such a hyper-normalized situation that we can't imagine anything outside of it? You know? Yeah, what's fascinating with this as well is now we have Donald Trump increasingly having this rhetoric of saying the election is rigged hmm. as well, right? And so that that seems to even further play into this general uh, distaste for our political system but now it seems with this rhetoric, you're almost getting to the death throes, right? You're saying that yeah. even voting, you know, just the the processes that are most open to us as citizens to create some sort of change, uh, Donald Trump is now saying are, are rigged, right? So he's, you know, almost trying to wipe out the credibility of the possibility for change in our political system. And mm-hmm. of course, uh, President Obama uh, just uh, yesterday really came out saying that um, you know, this is incredibly dangerous rhetoric. If we think about the stability of our political system and the ability to have uh, a peaceful transition of power, if people really feel that this system is totally rigged, yeah. um, you know, then, then it's, it's much more difficult to function. But, but it's hard. I mean, even with, with uh, you know, the ability to vote here in Massachusetts, right? Uh, this year we had 22 uncontested races for our Senate, which has 40 people. So that's, you know, slightly over half and 105 uncontested in the 160 member house of Massachusetts. So even, you know, in in, in this state where people uh, seem to be fairly politically active, you just have our our system is just there's there's very little actual change and opened Mm. up. That could yeah. even take place, yeah. And this, yeah. this, this actually reminds me of another quote that, that Eliado said in this piece I was talking mm-hmm. about, the Bolivian perspective, and that, uh, you know, again, from this this sort of outsider-insider perspective, he, he, you know, he says that, like, these elections show that the proud American democracy seems to resemble more of a lopsided third-world oligarchy, he says, which is really interesting. And an oligarchy, right. of course, is when it, just a few usually ruling families or really rich people run a system. Uh, and he goes on to say that, of course, oligarchies exist around the world, but not, of course, in the free and democratic America, he says, right? These elections might show otherwise because it seems that in order to aspire to be a political leader, you have to either be part of a political dynasty, in mm-hmm. this case, like Clinton, right? Or a billionaire magnate, like Trump. Exactly. And you compound that with our previous groups of presidents, the Bushes, mm-hmm. uh, Kennedys. We think of these names because they mean something. Even Roosevelt. Right. Yeah. These are big political actors who have basically characterized the last hundred years, the last century of politics in this country. Mm-hmm. So it takes a, this idea of democracy and really shifts it. Yeah, and it does. It does raise questions about how does the system actually run, right? It doesn't say that the system is broken. It just points out, okay, is democracy the exact thing that's happening, right? And this mm-hmm. we can say maybe, maybe not. That's what I was saying before, and we said the U.S. is actually a republic, right? We we right. elect senators and congresspersons to vote on our behalf. You know, and this idea was invented by the, the, the U.S., air quote, founding fathers, right? Is that, you know, because people are busy working in their in their farms and tilling their fields, they don't have time to come to Washington, D.C. or Philadelphia or Boston where they're, mm-hmm. they're doing elections at the time and vote. However, we have different access today in terms of Internet in, in um, you know, mobile phones and whatever. Absolutely. That, that 
could potentially challenge the paradigm, but this is one of the interesting questions, again, of hyper-normalization that we say, okay, well, this is how this has worked since the founding of the United States. How do we change right. it? Why would we change mm -hmm. it? What else could there be? You know, and so the other half of this is not only being able to not imagine there's an outside to this, but then all acting as if the system functions normally. Yeah. Indeed. And it creates yeah. a mythos around the system as well, because we're talking about this two-party system, which has supposedly been around since the founding father's time, right? Mm. Except those two parties have switched dynamics several different times. And in fact, the same parties that we originated with are quite different. So when we look at the third parties today, to think, well, maybe we're having some sort of outside representation. Maybe we're getting onto something that could be more representative of a diverse body. We're not really doing that because we're not taking consideration of those parties into a full effect in the way that we create, or in the way that we also do this for our binary. We still mm. believe in that binary. We still think the binary is the way to work. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think what's what's interesting here is it, it really shows the value of how we started this conversation off thinking about human population size. Right, and and the the transformation you're thinking of of what it was our population size and how we functioned in groups ten thousand years ago to the present, and how just the size of the U.S. right our population has has gone up dramatically, and yet mm -hmm. uh, you know this is a very different country from when when the founding fathers were around, and and we had that history. So how. So I think this, you know, it's really a great place for us to be as anthropologists to reflect on on this system because we're seeing this friction, mm. right, between how our society might actually be and what people's ideas of how society should be. Exactly. And and we're, you know, within that tension, we can see what are possible ways that this could change going forward. Um, I think this election's really brought out, you know, a lot of discontentment as well as uh, people you know really trying to think about what what system they're in so it'll be interesting to see what what goes forward exactly and again to bring it back to that notion of population if we look at the 1790 census for the United States of America the population was just under four million that's smaller than the greater Boston area right Wow so yeah. we can put everyone in the United States into that one group that's a much different situation. It, it, definitely, it definitely leaves us to think, you know, and I think this kind of one question we can lead off with or kind of end off with, I guess, I guess, is, you know, when we talk about this democracy and today, you know, we're talking 324 million people in the U.S. now. So, again, we're talking uh, a massive population increase. Uh, do we really have a choice in this kind of democracy now? Right. And does you know, the idea of one vote, does that count when we're talking about such a population size? Um, you know, we're not, we're not here to say people should or shouldn't vote, right? You know, uh, or to say the system does or doesn't work. We're just trying to question. You should probably vote. You should, you should, probably, <laughs> should probably vote, yeah. You know, yeah. We, we're reluctant to tell you what to do, but we'll tell you yeah. maybe, you know, we're, maybe we're going to vote. So yeah. maybe you should vote too if you want. Uh, but this is one of the questions. Do we have and like what limitations do we have? Like who can vote is definitely mm -hmm. one of the big questions too. Uh, that we're seeing in, in this election alone, 14 states have added voting restrictions this year. Hmm. Uh, that's going to hugely impact who can vote in different. There are different things in terms mm -hmm. of ages, and, and and this is the thing: they're they're based on a class or race line. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, the New York Times put out an article recently, right, saying how why 10% of Florida adults can't vote, and how felony convictions for for people who might have been in jail a year or or even more so ago still can't. Uh, express their views in our government, right? Mm -hmm. And this very disproportionately affects minority communities because of uh, discriminatory policing practices. So, uh, and, and that's that's a thing also, right? In in Donald Trump's rhetoric, he's 
uh, also saying that voter fraud is going to be a problem. But really, in this country, it seems the the main problem we have is uh, people being discriminated against to be not able to vote. Exactly. And we have this other issue that's being compounded with this national election is that state policies are actually restricting national ability to vote. So mm. it's the state policies that are impacting a national perspective, which is not the way that it should be working in a more democratic system. Mm. Yeah, it should flow more more freely, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, this this speaks to also this larger point of, you know, voting as the sort of cultural pressure, right? And and that like there's this ritual aspect. You know, we talked about collective effervescence and ritual to begin this, and we might want to just sort of end on that point, thinking about that this is itself a cultural pressure to vote, right? Mm -hmm. um, there was a great piece by Stephen Dumbledore in Freakonomics about why people vote, right? And, and <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a funny, a funny thesis, right? Exactly. And the whole thesis is that well. <laughs> If you shouldn't vote from an economic standpoint because whatever state you're in is often going to swing in one direction versus another historically. So that means that your vote from an individual is going to have little to no effect. However, they bring up that there's a social dimension to this and that we mm. in this culture tend to view people as good cultural citizens, good cultural participants if they do vote. So you should vote from that perspective, from cultural capital, because it makes you a more valuable uh, member of society. Yeah, or seem like you're participating properly, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good point to think about, right? To say, okay, so why, why am I voting? You know, and on one level it is this like, well, because I should vote. Right? Culture endorses the ritual. Yeah. Okay. I, I think with these theories, also what's fascinating is what we can think about on the individual level as well as the social, right? Going back mm -hmm. to Durkheim. And yeah. that's very interesting, especially in, in economics, the kind of perspectives on, uh, you know, how, how individual behavior is viewed in terms of larger mechanisms. So how, how we view markets as being functional, yeah. but then they can only function because of individual decisions, but then this is supposed to not matter in the larger structure. Mm. And so I think in the same way we see this with, uh, an idea of, you know, because of larger populations, the individual doesn't matter as much, but then it, it is all of us as individuals that create these structures. Yeah. So it's almost kind of the chicken and egg uh, <laughs> structure, right? Absolutely right. Yeah. The, or the human in the society structure, right? Yeah. Um, we are more like chickens and eggs than we think, um, which actually we'll be talking about in a couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, coming up. <laughs> but yeah, thanks guys. This has been, this has been cool to think about you know, U.S. politics, and I'm sure there's much more to dive into as, as we move into the coming weeks as the election gets closer, uh, and, you know, we'll see what happens. Exactly. Yeah. So let this be food for thought while you get ready for the final debate that mm. happens tonight, which will most likely not be the final debate between those candidates. Likely. Yeah. And we'll still be here, whatever happens, talking about the world through the lens of anthropology. Yes, yeah, so nothing else. Save your vote for this anthropological life. Yeah. Uh, thanks for joining. <laughs> this is Adam Gamwell. This is Ryan Collins. And this is Anil. See you guys next time. Later, guys.